Welcome listeners to a new episode of Criminal Mind, a brand new true crime podcast that delves into shocking cases that all tie into mental health. I'm Raviv, and today's episode is about Jennifer Cave. The murder of Jennifer Cave is not something that I want listeners to hear about lightly. This episode will contain graphic material, and I urge you to listen ahead with caution. I don't want to give away a ton more about this case without just jumping into the episode, so with that, we're going to strap in and walk through the story of Jennifer Cave together. Welcome to Criminal Mind. 2005, the University of Texas, Austin. Students began to return to campus for the new fall semester, but before the semester began, incoming students were met with a scene of horror. On August 18, 2005, 21-year-old Jennifer Cave was found dead in a bathtub. Jennifer Cave's killer cut off both of her hands and her head, and left the parts in garbage bags, which were found near her body. A resident of Austin, she had recently left Texas State University after one semester, having struggled in her academics, and decided to move. She was working multiple jobs in Austin, and also struggled with drug use. Her family was aware of her drug usage, and it seemed like she wanted to stop based on what I read about this case, but she had a difficult time. According to Medium, her father was an alcoholic and her parents divorced after a rather tumultuous marriage. Jennifer heavily struggled with her own drug and alcohol use during college, which played a role in her time at TSU. Amidst her personal struggles, Jennifer was offered a great job at a law firm in Austin and was excited for her first day on August 17, 2005, but she never showed up for her first day of work and nobody knew where she could be. It was strange. She had just been so excited to start this job, and one of the attorneys at her new firm decided to call her mom, Sharon. But Sharon didn't know where Jennifer was either, and grew concerned, because she knew how thrilled she had been. So Sharon tried calling Jennifer, no answer. Called a few more times, no answer. This is where she really began to worry. So worried that she called Jennifer's mobile provider, looking for a list of Jennifer's most recent calls, according to Chilling Crimes. She was able to obtain a list and began to call each number on it, hoping to uncover some answers about Jennifer's whereabouts. The thing is, Jennifer didn't expect to get a full-time job. She had responded to a job post from this law firm who were looking for someone to fill a one-day job position, a filing position. The firm was impressed with Jennifer's work and they asked if she wanted a full-time job, which was to start the next day, on the 17th. That's why she was so genuinely excited. It was unexpected. So, if she didn't show up, something had to be wrong, right? As she was making her way through that call list, Sharon spoke to a young man named Michael Rodriguez. He was a friend of Jennifer's. How close of a friend, I'm unsure, but he told Sharon that on August 16th, Jennifer was going to meet with Colton, and he was having some issues. I want to break away from this timeline real quick and provide some backstory as to who this Colton is, because he is the backstory. We'll come back to the timeline in a minute. Colton Petanyuk was 22 years old at the time of this story, and he attended the University of Texas as a junior. He seemed like a fine guy. No criminal history, he was from Arkansas, came from a perfectly clean record in high school, and his family was classified as upper middle class. He was intelligent, earning scholarships from the University of Texas, and at first glance, I don't think anyone would suspect anything off about him. But things took a weird turn when he went to college. While at the University of Texas, according to the Texas District and County Attorneys Association, he, quote, 
had been charged with DWI and POCS while at the university, so his family was aware of his problems with drug and alcohol. They did not appear to know that he was also dealing drugs, nor the extent to which his drug use had escalated during the summer of 2005, end quote. So there was a fresh issue at hand, one that seemed to pop up specifically while he was at school. Colton was a friend of Jennifer's, but their overall relationship was always hard to define. Nobody could say that they were together, but nobody could say that they weren't together. It seemed like they had a close relationship, but others also said that Jennifer got drugs from Colton, which would make him her dealer. Still to this day, their relationship really has never been defined as one way or another. Everything I read just says friends. On August 16th, 2005, Jennifer called Colton, she noticed a missed call from him at around 6 p.m., so she was just returning his call from earlier. They met up for dinner in downtown Austin and afterwards went to a bar on 6th Street, also in Austin. At about 11 p.m., Jennifer and Colton saw a few of Jennifer's friends, and they decided to join up with them at a place called Treasure Island. Everyone was drinking, and Colton made a purchase with someone on his phone for an 8-ball of Coke, which is equivalent to an 8th ounce. Friends say that Jennifer was sober, Midnight came around, and everyone decided to shift over to another bar, Cheers Shot Bar. But this is where things get strange. At the door of this bar, Colton pulled Jennifer away from the group, never going inside. And that was the last that was seen of the two that night, and the last ever seen of Jennifer. Red flags. A million red flags. We don't know the extent of their relationship, and it's just my opinion, but it does seem like he could have been her dealer. This isn't confirmed though, just like their relationship in general has never been confirmed or denied. Why was he pulling her away from the group though, instead of going into the bar? They didn't say goodbye, no indication that they wanted to leave, nothing like that. So that's my first question. Second question is, where were they going and did she have a say? This puts us back at Michael Rodriguez and Jennifer's mom, Sharon. Just to recap, during their phone call, he told Sharon that he tried to call Jennifer at 10.30 p.m. on the 16th. She said she was with Colton, he was having some trouble, and that was it. Michael must have sensed that something was off because he texted Jennifer a few more times after their call and tried calling a few more times. Maybe a gut instinct. Colton was upset that night, for whatever reason, and said that the only people who could help him were in jail, according to Chilling Crimes. So, my immediate thought goes to drugs something with dealing, and someone who got caught and was in jail. This was likely someone that Colton worked with, maybe? At this time, Colton was drunk, apparently urinating on other vehicles around him, and very angry. Jennifer had called Michael again at midnight, and once more at 1.05 a.m. that night, but the 1.05 call felt different. She seemed fine to Michael, and she said that Colton had lost his phone and wanted to go look for it. That was their last conversation. Based on this information, Sharon decided to call Colton herself to try and put the pieces together. They did have a conversation on the phone, and Colton said he didn't know where she was. Absolute bullshit right off the bat, because as the last person to have been seen with her, I think it's quite obvious that he knew exactly where she was and what happened to her. Sharon moved on though, calling other friends, asking for any information about Jennifer's whereabouts. Nobody had an answer. Sharon must have realized straight away that something was off about Colton because she decided to phone him again later that night. 
She had notified the police that Jennifer was missing and called to tell him that the police were on their way to his place to speak to him. Honestly, I think this was such a baller move. Sharon seemed to have great instincts about Colton and she wasn't having any of the BS. I want to talk really quickly about Colton and Jennifer's history a bit because it's obvious that there was something more than just a friendship between the two of them. While in college, despite having a previously clean record, Colton got a DUI. He refused any kind of treatment or rehabilitation and at the time was in a fraternity. While in the fraternity, his brothers grew uncomfortable around him. His behavior was astonishing as he abused drugs and fell into the throes of addiction. He ended up getting kicked out of his frat house and was suspended from UT due to his excessive drug use. Jennifer had also struggled with addiction and they ended up meeting each other at a party. Not the best environment to meet someone when you're both tangled up in addiction. Colton became obsessed with Jennifer, but according to Medium, she didn't reciprocate the feelings. He filled her need for drugs, giving her whatever she wanted, but she didn't want him in a romantic way. I'm sure that this fueled some type of anger or frustration in him, especially when drugs cost a lot of money. I'm not sure where he was acquiring his stashes for her, but it costs either way, and he seemed to be throwing everything he had at her in hopes that she would return the feeling. Colton was arrested for a second time in 2004 for possession, and police found a slew of prescription drugs visibly out in his apartment. Colton was manipulative. He knew exactly how to get his way, and his relationship with Jennifer, as friends or not, wasn't healthy in the slightest. I think he knew that she didn't want him in the way he wanted her, and this just pushed him to the edge. He eventually got out of prison for the possession charges, and Jennifer had been seeing another man. Her friends did not want her near him, but like magnets, the pull was too strong. She thought he was good, that he could be good. She broke up with her new boyfriend and started to hang around Colton again, both of them falling back into their old drug habits, a dangerous combination. On August 18th, 2005, Jennifer's car was found at Colton's apartment complex. Sharon and her boyfriend, Jim Sedgwick, had made the trek out to Austin after still hearing no word from Jennifer. Colton wasn't home, and the police couldn't legally enter his apartment without a warrant, so Sharon found a way in through a slightly broken window. Jim was the one to enter the apartment, and as he walked through, he made a horrifying discovery. There, in the bathtub, bloody and dismembered, were the remains of Jennifer Cave. Jennifer was shot, stabbed, and her head and hands had both been removed and placed into black trash bags, which were found near her body. According to Medium, Jim knew it was Jennifer because he noticed her freckled feet. The gunshot wound is what killed her. It cut right through the aorta. She was brutally stabbed 18 times, and a later x-ray revealed that there was a bullet lodged into the left side of her head, but there was no entry wound found. Now, I want to bring up the name Laura Hall. We haven't discussed her yet, but she's a big moving part in this case. This case has a ton of moving parts and can get quite confusing, so I'm breaking it up into pieces to try and make it as easy to understand as possible. In 2005, when Jennifer wasn't speaking to Colton, he began dating a young woman named Laura Hall. He got her hooked on drugs, and they engaged in regular sex. I honestly don't know if I'd consider this dating, but they were together in some capacity. Laura immediately grew jealous of Jennifer after learning about her existence. My guess is that she could tell how fond Colton was of her. She considered her an enemy or a rival, if you will, without even knowing her. So where does Laura fit into this story? Well, it's honestly really fucked up. 
With Colton as the prime murder suspect, police pinged his cell phone to see if it would show a location. Sure enough, his location was clear as day. He was driving to the border of Mexico, and guess who was with him? Laura Hall. The two were captured on August 23, 2005 by Mexican officials and brought back into the United States separately. Laura was not arrested right away and insisted that they were on vacation. How fucking stupid, honestly. You're on the lam, a young woman has just been brutally murdered, you obviously know about it, and you're trying to lie about being on vacation? They were partying, having fun, staying in hotels, it's just sickening. On the night of the murder, he had made multiple calls to Hall. About what, I'm unsure, but you can make an educated guess. According to the TCDAA, Colton had done everything he could to cover up the murder right away. Quote, At three in the morning, less than two hours after Michael Rodriguez last talked to Jennifer, Patanik went to the apartment of Nora Sullivan, several doors down from his own. While there, he told Nora a rambling tale about being in a gunfight with at least two Mexicans and claimed that he had fired two shots and may have hit someone. He removed the magazine from his gun and asked Nora if he had blood on him. She pointed out a small smear on his arm that appeared to be blood, end quote, as quoted by the TCDAA. I don't even know who Nora Sullivan is besides being a neighbor, and she isn't mentioned anywhere else in regards to this case. But I think he was just trying to cover up his tracks best he could. He was texting with Laura Hall simultaneously. Then, Colton visited a local hardware store to purchase a hacksaw, masks, ammonia, and cleaning products. This is also quite obvious behavior. What I don't understand is why he severed her head and hands just to leave the body parts in bags right next to the rest of the body. This makes zero sense to me, and nothing that I've read has made the intention any bit clearer. If he was trying so hard to clean up his mess, wouldn't he try to get rid of the body instead? Colton was charged with murdering Jennifer Cave, and at trial, he claimed that he couldn't remember what happened that night. More bullshit. He blamed his supposed lack of memory on his excessive drug use, and that he had been on a bit of a bender then. Quote, I have no idea what happens. Everything points to it. I can't think of any other thing that happened, end quote, he said, as quoted by AY Magazine. It turns out that Laura Hall helped him clean up the murder, that they severed her body parts together and then put them into bags. He claimed that she was a part of it all, and that she was actually the one who shot Jennifer. This goes back to the jealousy discussed earlier. That was the defense's motive for Hall. Quote, she was psychotic. She shot the head after it was decapitated, end quote, Colton said about Hall. The jury didn't buy it about Hall being the killer, and Colton was convicted of murder and sentenced to 55 years in prison. What's quite ironic about this trial is that the defense painted Laura Hall as this crazy, love-obsessed human being, one who was unable to stay away from Colton, but that's how he was with Jennifer Cave. So I found that pretty interesting, and more so just ironic. According to friends, Laura bragged about playing a role in the murder of Jennifer Cave, which is just so disgusting and unimaginable. She did end up serving time as well, being convicted of tampering with evidence and hindering apprehension. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison and was released on parole in 2018. Colton is still serving out his 55-year sentence. The biggest and most haunting question for me about this case is, why? Who actually killed her and why did they do it? They both have clear cases for motive. Laura's was jealousy and Colton's was frustration and anger over her not having reciprocated feelings. 
The motive was there for both, but they also worked together. Did they really both hate Jennifer Cave that much? She seemed to have so much potential and drive to get better. She was so excited about the new job that she was unexpectedly offered on the fly, and she never had the opportunity to take and experience that. This case fills me with so much sadness because, in my opinion, we have two bitter, angry human beings taking out their aggression on a young woman who had her entire life in front of her. A refreshed, sober, happy life. Thank you so much again for checking out Criminal Mind. If this is the first episode you've listened to, there are a handful of other episodes that you can listen to that we've released so far on our show page. As always, you can reach out to me on socials at IamRaviv across the board if you want to give me any feedback, which is always appreciated. And there goes my ice machine. <laughs> or just chat about any one of these cases. I'm also always taking suggestions for future cases to cover, so if you know of any that fit within the realm of Criminal Mind, please let me know. We are now halfway through season two of Criminal Mind. This season will have six episodes. I've already decided on all of my cases for season three, but I'm beginning to look for new cases to cover for season four, which will likely be later this summer, early fall. So if you have any suggestions for that, please let me know again on socials. I'm specifically looking for cases that revolve around mental health in some aspect. Again, if you like what you're hearing so far on Criminal Mind, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate us five stars, and share with all your true crime-addicted friends. See you next time. Love, Revive.